0: Book One, Chapter Two, Part Three of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. When Magnus came out of the grocery store and once more seated himself in the buggy, he said to Harran, Boy, drive over there to Annixter's before we start home. I want to ask him to dine with us tonight. Osterman and Brodison are to drop in, I believe, and I uh, should like to have Annixter as well." Magnus was lavishly hospitable. Los Muertos' doors invariably stood open to all the Derrick's neighbors, and once in so often Magnus had a few of his intimates to dinner. As Harran and his father drove along the road toward Annixter's ranch house, Magnus asked about what had happened during his absence. He inquired after his wife and the ranch, commenting upon the work on the irrigating ditch. Harran gave him the news of the past week: Dyke's discharge, his resolve to raise a crop of hops, Vanamee's return, the killing of the sheep, and Hooven's petition to remain upon the ranch as Magnus's tenant. It needed only Harran's recommendation that the German should remain to have Magnus consent upon the instant. You know more about it than I, boy," he said. "'Whatever you think is wise shall be done.' Harran touched the bays with the whip, urging them to their briskest pace. They were not yet at Annixter's, and he was anxious to get back to the ranch house to supervise the bluestoning of his seed. "'By the way, Governor,' he demanded suddenly, "'how is Lyman getting on?' Lyman, Magnus's eldest son, had never taken kindly toward the ranch life. He resembled his mother more than he did Magnus, and had inherited from her a distaste for agriculture and a tendency toward a profession. At a time when Harran was learning the rudiments of farming, Lyman was entering the state university, and graduating thence, had spent three years in the study of law. But later on, traits that were particularly his father's developed. Politics interested him. He told himself he was a born politician, was diplomatic, approachable, had a talent for intrigue, a gift for making friends easily, and, most indispensable of all, a veritable genius for putting influential men under obligations to himself. Already he had succeeded in gaining for himself two important offices in the municipal administration of San Francisco, where he had his home sheriff's attorney and, later on, assistant district attorney. But with these small achievements he was by no means satisfied. The largeness of his father's character, modified in Lyman by a counter-influence of selfishness, had produced in him an inordinate ambition. Where his father, during his political career, had considered himself only as an exponent of principles he strove to apply, Lyman saw but the office, his own personal aggrandizement. He belonged to the new school, wherein objects were attained not by orations before senates and assemblies, but by sessions of committees, caucuses, compromises, and expedients. His goal was to be in fact what Magnus was only in name governor. Lyman, with shut teeth, had resolved that some day he would sit in the gubernatorial chair in Sacramento lyman is doing well answered magnus i could wish he was more pronounced in his convictions less willing to compromise but i believe him to be earnest and to have a talent for government and civics his ambition does him credit and if he occupied himself a little more with means and a little less with ends he would i am sure be the ideal servant of the people but i am not afraid Time will come when the state will be proud of him. As Harran turned the team into the driveway that led up to Annixter's house, Magnus remarked, "Harran, isn't that young Annixter himself on the porch?" Harran nodded and remarked, "By the way, Governor, I wouldn't seem too cordial in your invitation to Annixter. He will be glad to come, I know. But if you want him too much, it is just like his confounded obstinacy to make objections." Uh, there's something in that observed magnus as harran drew up at the porch of the house he is a queer cross-grained fellow but in many ways sterling annixter was lying in the hammock on the porch precisely as presley had found him the day before reading david copperfield and stuffing himself with dried prunes when he recognised magnus however he got up though careful to give evidence of the most poignant discomfort he explained his difficulty at great length protesting that his stomach was no better than a sponge bag would magnus and harran get down and have a drink there was whiskey somewhere about magnus however declined he stated his errand asking annixter to come over to los muertos that evening for seven o'clock dinner osterman and broderson would be there at once annixter even to harran's surprise put his chin in the air making excuses fearing to compromise himself if he accepted too readily. No, he did not think he could get around, was sure of it, in fact. There were certain businesses he had on hand that evening. He had practically made an appointment with a man at Bonneville, Uh, then too he was uh, thinking of going up to San Francisco tomorrow, and needed his sleep, and would go to bed early. And besides all that, he was a very sick man. His stomach was out of whack. "'If he moved about, it brought the gripes back. No, they must get along without him.' Magnus, knowing with whom he had to deal, did not urge the point, but convinced that Annixter would argue over the affair the rest of the morning, he resettled himself in the buggy, and Harran gathered up the reins. "'Well,' he observed, "'you know your business best. Come if you can. We dine at seven i hear you are going to farm the whole of los muertos this season remarked annixter with a certain note of challenge in his voice we are thinking of it replied magnus annixter grunted scornfully did you get the message i sent you by presley he began tactless blunt and direct annixter was quite capable of calling even magnus a fool to his face but before he could proceed s behrman in his single buggy turned into the gate, and driving leisurely up to the porch, halted on the other side of Magnus's team. good morning, gentlemen,' he remarked, nodding to the two derricks as though he had not seen them earlier in the day. "'Mr. Annixter, how do you do?' "'What in hell do you want?' demanded Annixter with a stare. S. Behrman hiccuped slightly and passed a fat hand over his waistcoat. Why not very much, Mr Annixter, he replied, ignoring the belligerency in the young ranchman's voice. But I will have to lodge a protest against you, Mr. Annixter, in the matter of keeping your line fence in repair. The sheep were all over the track last night, beside the long trestle, and I am afraid they have seriously disturbed our ballast along there. We, the railroad, can't fence along our right of way the farmers have the prescriptive right to do that so we have to look to you to keep your fence in repair i am sorry but i shall have to protest annixter returned to the hammock and stretched himself out in it to his full length and remarked tranquilly to the devil. It is as much in your interest as in ours, and the safety of the public. You heard what I said. Go to the devil. That all may show obstinacy, Mr. Annixter. But suddenly Annixter jumped up again and came to the edge of the porch. His face flamed scarlet to the roots of his stiff yellow hair. He thrust out his jaw aggressively, clenching his teeth. "You," he vociferated. "I'll tell you what you are." you're a a a pip to his mind it was the last insult the most outrageous calumny he had no worse epithet at his command Be show obstinacy pursued s behrman bent upon finishing the phrase but it don't show common sense i'll mend my fence and then maybe again i won't mend my fence shouted Exter i know what you mean that wild engine last night well you've no right to run at that speed in town limits How the town limits the sheep were this side the long trestle well that's in the town limits of guadalajara by mr annixter the long trestle is a good two miles out of guadalajara annixter squared himself leaping to the chance of an argument two miles not a mile and a quarter no it's not a mile i'll leave it to magnus here Oh i know nothing about it declared magnus refusing to be involved yes you do yes you do too any fool knows how far it is from guadalajara to long trestle it's about uh, five-eighths of a mile from the deep level of the pound remarked s Bearman placidly to the head of the long trestle is about two miles. That's a lie, and you know it's a lie, shouted the other, furious at S. Behrman's calmness, and I can prove it's a lie. I've walked that distance on the upper road, and I know just how fast I walk, and I can walk four miles in one hour. Magnus and Harron drove on, leaving Annixter, trying to draw S. Behrman into a wrangle. When at length S. Behrman as well took himself away, Annexter returned to his hammock, finished the rest of his prunes, and read another chapter of Copperfield. Then he put the book open over his face and went to sleep. An hour later, toward noon, his own terrific snoring woke him up suddenly, and he sat up rubbing his face and blinking in the sunlight. There was a bad taste in his mouth from sleeping with it wide open, and going into the dining room of the house, he mixed himself a drink of whiskey and soda, and swallowed it in three great gulps. He told himself that he felt not only better, but hungry, and pressed an electric button in the wall near the sideboard three times to let the kitchen, situated in a separate building near the ranch house, know that he was ready for his dinner. As he did so, an idea occurred to him he wondered if Hilma Tree would bring up his dinner and wait on the table while he ate it. In connection with his ranch, Annixter ran a dairy farm on a very small scale, making just enough butter and cheese for the consumption of the ranch's uh, personnel. Old Man Tree, his wife, and his daughter Hilma looked after the dairy, but there was not always work enough to keep the three of them occupied, and Hilma at times made herself useful in other ways. As often as not she lent a hand in the kitchen, and two or three times a week she took her mother's place in looking after Annixter's house, making the beds, putting his room to rights, bringing his meals up from the kitchen. For the last summer she had been away visiting with relatives in one of the towns on the coast. But the week previous to this she had returned, and Annixter had come upon her suddenly one day in the dairy, making cheese, The sleeves of her crisp blue shirt-waist rolled back to her very shoulders. Annixter had carried away with him a clear-cut recollection of those smooth white arms of hers bare to the shoulder, very round and cool and fresh. He would not have believed that a girl so young should have had arms so big and perfect. To his surprise he found himself thinking of her after he had gone to bed that night and in the morning when he woke he was bothered to know whether he had dreamed about Hilma's fine white arms overnight. Then abruptly he had lost patience with himself for being so occupied with the subject, raging and furious with all the breed of females, a fine way for a man to waste his time. He had had his experience with the timid little creature in the glove-cleaning establishment in Sacramento. That was enough females rot none of them in his thank you he had seen hilma tree give him a look in the dairy aha he saw through her she was trying to get a hold on him was she (laughs) he would show her wait till he saw her again he would send her about her business in a hurry he resolved upon a terrible demeanour in the presence of the dairy girl a great show of indifference a fierce masculine nonchalance and when the next morning she brought him his breakfast he had been smitten dumb as soon as she entered the room gluing his eyes upon his plate his elbows close to his side awkward clumsy overwhelmed with constraint while true to his convictions as a woman-hater and genuinely despising hilma both as a girl and as an inferior the idea of her worried him most of all he was angry with himself because of his inane sheepishness when she was about he at first had told himself that he was a fool not to be able to ignore her existence as hitherto and then that he was a greater fool not to take advantage of his position Certainly he had not the remotest idea of any affection, but Hilma was a fine-looking girl. He imagined an affair with her. As he reflected upon the matter now, scowling abstractedly at the button of the electric bell, turning the whole business over in his mind, he remembered that today was butter-making day and that Mrs. Tree would be occupied in the dairy. That meant that Hilma would take her place. He turned to the mirror of the sideboard, scrutinizing his reflection with grim disfavor. After a moment, rubbing the roughened surface of his chin the wrong way, he muttered to his image in the glass, That mug! Good Lord, what a looking mug! Then, after a moment's silence, Wonder if that fool female will be up here today. He crossed over into his bedroom and peeked around the edge of the lowered curtain the window looked out upon the skeleton-like tower of the artesian well and the cook-house and dairy-house close beside it as he watched he saw hilma come out from the cook-house and hurry across toward the kitchen evidently she was going to see about his dinner but as she passed by the artesian well she met young delaney one of annixter's hands coming up the trail by the irrigating ditch leading his horse toward the stables, a great coil of barbed wire in his gloved hands and a pair of nippers thrust into his belt. No doubt he had been mending the brake in the line fence by the long trestle. Annixter saw him take off his wide-brimmed hat as he met Hilma, and the two stood there for some moments talking together. Annixter even heard Hilma laughing very gaily at something Delaney was saying. She patted his horse's neck affectionately, and Delaney, drawing the nippers from his belt, made as if to pinch her arm with them. She caught at his wrist and pushed him away, laughing again. To Annixter's mind, the pair seemed astonishingly intimate. Brusquely, his anger flamed up. Ah, that was it, was it? Delaney and Hilma had an understanding between themselves. They carried on their affair right out there in the open under his very eyes. It was absolutely disgusting. Had they no sense of decency, these two? well this ended it he would stop that sort of thing short off none of that on his ranch if he knew it no sir he would pack that girl off before he was a day older he wouldn't have that kind about the place not much she'd have to get out he would talk to old man tree about it this afternoon whatever happened he insisted upon morality and my dinner he suddenly exclaimed. I've got to wait and go hungry and maybe get sick again while they carry on their disgusting love-making. He turned about on the instant and striding over to the electric bell rang it again with all his might. When that female gets up here, he declared, I'll just find out why I've got to wait like this. I'll take her down to the Queen's taste. I'm lenient enough, God knows, but I don't propose to be imposed on all the time. A few moments later, while Annixter was pretending to read the county newspaper by the window in the dining room, Hilma came in to set the table. At the time Annixter had his feet cocked on the window ledge and was smoking a cigar, but as soon as she entered the room he, without premeditation, brought his feet down to the floor and crushed out the lighted tip of his cigar under the window ledge. Over the top of the paper he glanced at her covertly from time to time. Though Hilma was only 19 years old, she was a large girl with all the development of a much older woman. There was a certain generous amplitude to the full round curves of her hips and shoulders that suggested the precocious maturity of a healthy, vigorous animal life passed under the hot southern sun of a half-tropical country. She was, one knew at a glance, warm-blooded, full-blooded, with an even, comfortable balance of temperament her neck was thick and sloped to her shoulders with full beautiful curves and under her chin and under her ears the flesh was as white and smooth as floss satin shading exquisitely to a faint delicate brown on her nape at the roots of her hair her throat rounded to meet her chin and cheek with a soft swell of the skin tinted pale amber in the shadows but blending by barely perceptible gradations to the sweet warm flush of her cheek the colour on her temples was just touched with a certain blueness where the flesh was thin over the fine veining underneath her eyes were light brown and so wide open that on the slightest provocation the full disc of the pupil was disclosed the lids just a fraction of a shade darker than the hue of her face were edged with lashes that were almost black. While these lashes were not long, they were thick, and rimmed her eyes with a fine, thin line. Her mouth was rather large, the lips shut tight, and nothing could have been more graceful, more charming, than the outline of those full lips of hers, and her round, white chin, modulating downward with a certain delicious roundness to her neck, her throat, and the sweet, feminine amplitude of her breast. The slightest movement of her head and shoulders sent a gentle undulation through all this beauty of soft outlines and smooth surfaces, the delicate amber shadows deepening or fading or losing themselves imperceptibly in the pretty rose color of her cheeks, or the dark, warm, tinted shadow of her thick brown hair. Her hair seemed almost to have a life of its own, almost Medusa-like, thick, glossy, and moist, lying in heavy, sweet-smelling masses over her forehead, over her small ears with their pink lobes, and far down upon her nape. Deep in between the coils and braids it was of bitumen brownness, but in the sunlight it vibrated with a sheen like tarnished gold like most large girls her movements were not hurried and this indefinite deliberateness of gesture this slow grace this certain ease of attitude was a charm that was all her own but hilma's greatest charm of all was her simplicity a simplicity that was not only in the calm regularity of her face with its statuesque evenness of contour, its broad surface of cheek and forehead, and the masses of her straight, smooth hair, but was apparent as well in the long line of her carriage, from her foot to her waist, and the single deep swell from her waist to her shoulder. Almost unconsciously she dressed in harmony with this note of simplicity, and on this occasion wore a skirt of plain dark-blue calico, and a white shirt-waist crisp from the laundry. And yet, for all the dignity of this rigorous simplicity, there was about Hilma small contradictory suggestions of feminine daintiness, charming beyond words. Even Annixter could not help noticing that her feet were narrow and slender, and that the little steel buckles of her low shoes were polished bright, and that her finger-tips and nails were of a fine, rosy pink. End of Book One, Chapter Two, Part Three